Hysterical people, welcome to the Hysterical Society Feminist Podcast. Today's episode, I'm so thrilled and honored to welcome Dr. Deshaun Taylor from the Desert Star Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, she's an abortion provider, uh, reproductive justice advocate, and so much more. We're going to get into a lot of that today, but we're mainly going to be talking about her book, those of you on the YouTube, I have a copy of it right here. She wrote an amazing book called Undo Burden. When did you publish this? Earlier this year? April 25th. In April. Amazing, amazing, amazing. It's so good. There's so much good stuff in there. What I really liked about it was that you summarized at the end of each chapter, like the real nuts and bolts. So it's not even that long already. There's so much good stuff, but you really um, gave it you you dished out the good information in such an easy to consume way for for those of us who might not have a lot of time to read a, a big yeah. tome. So thank you for that, and it's so amazing. And I'm just really thrilled that you had that you took the time out of your busy schedule to put that book out there. And again, taking some time to speak with me today. So welcome. And why don't um, you go ahead and introduce yourself? I might have missed some of the amazing things you do. You have a lot of different um, ways that you help people out there in Phoenix and other places as well. So why don't you introduce yourself and be a little more elaborate than I did? I'm Dr. Deshaun Taylor. I am a board certified obstetrician gynecologist. And I am the founder of Desert Star Family Planning, which is an independent abortion clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. And through my work providing care in the clinic, I found some gaps that could be addressed, not through a so-called for-profit entity, but needed a charitable entity. So I founded Desert Star Institute for Family Planning four years later after starting the clinic, through which I trained the next generation of abortion providers provide patient assistance for family planning services, and then do community education and advocacy work around reproductive health rights and justice. And after the Supreme Court Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, well, actually before that happened, I saw the writing on the wall when the Supreme Court took up the Dobbs case in January. And so I founded a consulting company, Health Justice MD that it helps to equip advocate-minded people to more effectively speak about, organize around abortion and intersecting issues and advance policies to expand access to care. And so those are the main things that I do for work um, besides being an author and, and, and a speaker. And my goal honestly is to impact access to the full range of reproductive health care, including abortion, through direct service, through training and teaching and advocacy. All of those things are very much needed to make our future brighter around people's ability to access the care they need. And I specifically, as an OBGYN, have concentrated my career in abortion because there are plenty of us OBGYNs who 
are comfortable providing obstetric care, but not abortion. And so very early on in my career, I decided to make that a very important part of what I do. That's so amazing and wonderful. And and you as a Black woman, of course, um, can really cater to the population that need it and the oppressed communities. So I, I love that. And um, yeah, you're a badass. I was like reading your book and I'm like, I feel like you should run for president or something because although that would be taking you away from doing the work that you're actually doing. So I know that that might not be great, but you really are an amazing, amazing person and, and a role model for so many, I hope, young people that are going to follow in your footsteps. And, um, and for me, as somebody who's I'm sure older than you, but I can learn so much from you. You've already helped me to change the vernacular of the way I speak about abortion and the the terminology of pro-choice. And I loved what you said in the book about that. So maybe you can help the listeners push their envelope, if you will, the way you helped me um, open my kind of mind even more about abortion care and how it's just healthcare and it's really important to, to kind of destigmatize. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of speaking about that a little bit from your perspective. Yeah. So I, I definitely appreciate all that you have said. I have had people kind of try to broach the conversation about me potentially running for some sort of office. I will say that the amount of bipartisanship and compromise that is required to be a public official is not in my wheelhouse. So I um, firmly reject the idea that I would be a politician, but a lot of what I am doing these days is having conversations with politicians, helping them see abortion in a different light because it is so important in the debate that we're having today that people understand that the choice framework, though it served a purpose for a time, is not a framework that is going to meaningfully move us forward. And scholar Marlene Freed actually espoused some of the problems with choice and I share about eight of those points in my book under the reproductive justice chapter under a subheading of uh, problematic rhetoric of choice. And one of the biggest things that is problematic with the pro-choice is that it essentially creates a divide that is not really the way that abortion works. Like people's lives are more complex than whether or not someone will have or not have an abortion. And I take it a, a little a little bit more forward than where Marlene started the conversation in that in my experience as an abortion provider and someone who talks about abortion a lot, it seems that pro-choice creates this idea of good and bad abortions. In conversations I've had with pro-choice people is that they support abortion within reason. Like remember uh, that that term that was coined some time ago by a politician about abortion being safe, 
legal and rare. Why does it need to be rare? Right. It is a very important part of people's everyday life. It's one of the most common medical procedures in the country. One in four people with reproductive capacity will have an abortion in their reproductive lifetime. So what we're doing when we use that type of language are we are actually helping to further shame and stigma around the decision to end a pregnancy. Right. And I think people are well-meaning when they say that they're pro-choice, but also too, I've learned over time that people who are firmly rooted in the idea that they're pro-choice and not pro-abortion are actually people who are okay with abortion bans. Like they think that people should be more responsible in their sex lives. They think that people should use birth control and they think that you know, people who have the means to care for children should probably have them, that they may not have an abortion themselves, but they supposedly believe that, you know, somebody else should be able to have one. So they're setting themselves apart. And choice is a privilege. Because if you look a little bit deeper beyond the surface, there are populations of people who are experiencing oppression. And therefore, number one, what they see as a potential choice for themselves is very different than someone who is not oppressed. And also, too, people who are oppressed have a very difficult time exercising their rights or demanding that their rights be executed and not ignored. So choice is a privilege. Yeah. Because ultimately, if someone can't see that they can make a choice and then execute on it, then what really is the point of having a choice? Right. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, the safe, legal, and rare. I mean, I so remember that from when I was growing up before I was even, you know, needed my own abortion when I was 16. I mean, I didn't really feel bad about my own abortion because I knew that it was the right thing, but I definitely was in the shadows and, you know, nobody, you know, I didn't want to talk about it, of course. And I feel now, you know, 30 years later or whatever, that I'm talking about it more, you know, I'm talking about it more now. You also made the point of with pregnancies, other things that people don't talk about miscarriages people don't talk about you don't want to tell people you're pregnant until after the third month or whatever because you're worried and I get that you don't want to have to deal with the explanation but but the idea that if you did have a miscarriage why aren't we talking about it I'm now in menopause and I'm like ah I'm dying of symptoms and people nobody's talking about it but you know it's like we're not talking about stuff it's part of our society. So I, I'm so grateful that you and others like you are are being more vocal and really educating everybody. But we're very grateful and very lucky to have you out there on the front lines, as you said, in your book is bad because it sort of like makes it like a war. And, you know, in a way it is like a war, but we don't want it to be. We want to be have it just be part of society. Right. Right. Abortion is health care. And these conversations around reproductive health care, as you mentioned, are just in the shadows. People are feeling isolated and alone in these situations that are extremely common because we're not having a conversations amongst each other about these. And, and I talk about this in the book. One of the reasons why is because there is this default societal norm that has been created about this cisgendered, heterosexual white woman who is happily pregnant and breezes through pregnancy and childbirth and is a very happy stay-at-home mom taking care of the home, the husband, um, basically this nuclear family that is uh, really steeped in white Christian values 
And anything outside of that is othered. Mm -hmm. So even if you are a cisgendered, heterosexual white woman, well, you had a miscarriage. And there's shame in that because the images that you've been force fed over the course of your lifetime up to this point is that pregnancies are great and people breeze through them. Like you see people doing yoga at nine months, right? Like, so there are these images that on its face, you might say to yourself, like, this isn't reality. Like, I people just can't be living this way. But you see it so much. And then people don't talk about their experiences. Then you say, well, you know, then I'm just not something's wrong with me. My situation is unusual. And therefore, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Right. And so what I really appreciated a few years ago was when people started talking about how miserable they were during pregnancy. I think this was a trend on Twitter at some point where people yeah. were like really like truth telling. And folks were like, oh, my God, you saw these threads and threads about people's hair falling out, their teeth falling out, like all of these things that people were sharing with each other. Like, oh, my God, my teeth fell out too. And oh, my God, my, you know, and I was just like, see, this is wonderful. Like, this is what we need so that people know that these are common experiences. And I lay these, some of these like conditions out in my book, because when we're telling people to just stay pregnant, we are trivializing these experiences that people are having that are actually very common and is putting their ability to thrive at risk. Yeah. Now, Adoption is wonderful and very noble if that's the route that people want to take. I didn't choose that. I had an abortion. And, you know, whatever you want to, I mean, I know you wouldn't say this, but some people might say I took the easy way out. And maybe I did. I didn't want to be pregnant for nine months. I already had a little bit of morning sickness, which is how I figured out that I was even pregnant to begin with. And I was stupid. I was 16. I was a junior in high school. You know, it was at the beginning of the year. I'm not going to, you know, I would have had to leave school. It would have just not it's just not an option and had I even been older and had three kids already and you know had all of those other burdens that you also talk about in the book you know maybe I wouldn't have wanted to have that baby I don't know as a person who I'm now in my 50s and I don't have any children and that has been the right choice for me kids are great and I love giving them back to their parents when they start acting up and you know what have you I love kids. I just am too selfish to have raised them myself. And I'm so I'm glad that I had the option when I did. I want to I kind of define for our listeners reproductive justice. So maybe you can do that. Um, and I love that I'm now a part of reproductive justice as a non-mother. So I definitely want to do that. But as I'm listening to you talk, I am hearing a lot of some of the internalized narratives and the way that you described yourself and your experience, right? So when you were 16, you were dumb. Well, you know, your frontal lobe of your brain was not fully developed. So honestly, can you really make real uh, important decisions about your life at 16, about whether you should have had sex or whether there was birth control used or any of those things? And so- This idea that what I try to deconstruct when I'm talking with people about their decisions to have abortions, or even, you know, I've had moms come in with their daughters who were holding on to things. And now like they're releasing now that we've had this conversation 20 years later about some of the shame they were holding on to that maybe they didn't really realize they were holding on to. But these messages that you should have been smarter, you should have been more responsible. And all of those things are part of this societal narrative. It's basically, you. it's in the air we're breathing and the water we're drinking that 
there these messages that we're receiving about the type of people we're supposed to be. And at the end of the day, with everything that we are going through in our lives, honestly, I've been an OBGYN for over 20 years now, and I've been an abortion provider the entire time. The last thing that somebody's thinking about is whether they're going to get pregnant from sex. Like, I mean, that, that's just the, the yeah. God honest truth. And so to think that people are putting that much value on what's going to happen because they're having sex is a religious value because in certain religions, sex is coupled with procreation. And therefore, every time you are having sex, you're supposed to be having sex to create a, a pregnancy, which is not people's real lived experiences. Right. And for people who were really, really raised in that, there was a level of trauma that has to be unpacked around relationships with their husbands, for example, after they've gone through menopause and their procreative capacity is gone, but their husband still wants to have sex. Like all of this stuff is just like, this is some serious stuff because I can't have babies anymore. Why are you still trying to have sex with me? And now the relationship is strained and it's a whole mess. And all of these things are happening, right? And then the other piece of it is out of all the people that I've ever taken care of who have both had an abortion and also placed a child for adoption. The thing that haunts them the most is the adoption. They hope that the child that they gave away is okay, that they're alive and well, that they ended up with a family that really cares for them, and they don't know. And so the idea that having an abortion is selfish is again, some internalization of some societal values that we've assimilated over time, but haven't necessarily interrogated to be able to talk to ourselves better and reconcile the decisions we've made that were really important to us and have helped us be the adults, the 50-somethings, the 60-somethings that we are today and the contributions we've been able to make to society, right? There's still that piece of us that's like, oh my gosh, you know, that Although you have created a positive frame, there's still that sticking point in some of that um, language that's been used that reflects that there's that societal narrative has been integrated into the way you think about yourself and the decisions that you've made. And so what I wanted to do when I wrote this book was to lay all of that out, you know, to it is okay to just not want to be pregnant. And it is okay to say that I am not ready to parent. And it is okay to say that because I don't wanna be pregnant and because I'm not ready to parent, I am gonna have an abortion. Because if I stay pregnant and I'm fortunate enough to make it to term and deliver a baby, I'm not gonna give it to a stranger. 2% of children in the United States are adopted, 2%. So yeah. where are the rest of them? In foster yeah. care, right? Foster care, yeah. Right? So it it is, this is the way like we're not making excuses. We're not trying to justify. What we're doing is truth telling. These are people's realities. And you don't know what you would do. You can theorize and hypothesize and philosophize all you want to. I see a lot of people who show up in the clinic really distressed and distraught because they never thought they would be there. You do not know what you would do, right? Until you are actually faced with a decision. And because abortion is so common, guess what? You are very likely to choose to have an abortion over whatever your other option is. You know, I just wanted, to, I had to say that because these are, you know, the conversations that we're deconstructing when I'm in the middle of providing care to people and, and helping them get to a place where 
if it's not a hard decision for you, you don't have to feel bad. You don't have to perform for me. You can, you get to be like, I'm about to have this abortion today and me and my friends are going to go like party about it because we're in college. We're trying to get our PhDs, whatever. Right. And then if it is a really hard decision for you, then you get to like be validated in that this is a hard decision for you. And how do we get you to a place where you're going to be okay? Because logically, you know that now is not the right time to continue this pregnancy and have a baby. Right. So those are spectrums and people are everywhere in between and everybody gets to be validated in the process that they're going through about their body and their pregnancy and their family and all the other things that they are bringing into the decision whether to continue a pregnancy or not. And so that leads us into how reproductive justice helps us in this process. And so there are four main tenets or principles of reproductive justice. And they are one, the right to bodily autonomy, two, the right to not bear children, three, the right to bear children, and four, the right to parent children in safe and sustainable communities. And so seeing the human right to abortion through the lens of reproductive justice is so important because especially when you pull in that piece about bodily autonomy, then that broadens our conversation to gender issues. Our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters become a part of this conversation. I take care of trans men. I provided abortions for trans men. And so that's when we're having this conversation that not only women have abortions, right? And like, what language are we using to be inclusive? to uh, account for all people who potentially will need to choose to continue a pregnancy or not in their lives. And then the part of parenting children in safe and sustainable communities, my goodness, that is just like revolutionary because when we limit our discussion to whether or not people can get an abortion, we are erasing all the people who actually are fighting to have and raise children. For some people, if the conditions were met for them to do that in a meaningful way with dignity, then they would probably continue a pregnancy. So like this, the, the, the reason that reproductive justice is so such a wonderful framework is we're making room for all of those things. And we are treating this the way that people are actually treating the decision to have an abortion or not in their own lives. It is in the context of their entire lives. And we don't live in a world where every child born is well cared for and wanted. So because that condition is not met, then why should we force someone to continue a pregnancy and force them into parenting and then call them a bad parent when XYZ happens or that they have made a personal failure when their children are handed into the prison industrial complex or child protective services, right? So it's like, there's so many conflicting messages that people are receiving because folks are, you know, feel like they have a say in what other people are doing with their bodies and lives. And it is that singular focus that also creates the conditions for people to be single issue voters that continue to vote against their own selves on multiple other issues because they're like so indoctrinated into this idea of being anti-abortion. So this really broadens our frame 
And it really starts to have us reach people who would otherwise, when you're thinking about, when you're applying a justice lens to this situation, the, the opportunity for people to see things a bit differently. Yeah, it's great. And it really brought me into the conversation as somebody who doesn't have any children. And maybe now that I'm no longer able to have children, you know, I mean, I've just recently crossed into the menopause column. And yeah, I've sort of had to kind of grapple with that a little bit. But the reproductive justice framework makes it completely okay that I am a childless woman because I'm okay with it. But what I've noticed over the time is society kind of goes, what, what is your deal? Like, why aren't you procreating? Why aren't you, don't you have a husband? You know, all of that. You know, I am a privileged white cisgender person because I have made different choices in my life of not to go into the box of the married with 2.6 kids or whatever and the white picket fence that I'm, I'm also othered, you know, I'm not as othered as, you know, the black and brown people, you know, populations, but I am othered in that way that I am a, I'm a spinster, you know, whatever. I've now coined a different term for that, but yeah, I'm one of the people who would have been hung up, you know, as a witch or something back in the old days. So yeah, so I, I get that I am oppressed in that, in that way, but not as much as a marginalized population. I think many people who are listening may have heard the term oppression Olympics, right? And and we're not trying to do this. But I think what's important in what you just said is that when we are trying to build a movement, then it is very important for people to see themselves in the movement. And so finding those intersections are important because otherwise you as a cisgendered white heterosexual woman could then come in in another way that community doesn't like, which is saviorism. Mm. If you are setting yourself apart, but you're trying to participate in the movement, that's not authentic. So it's important for people to see themselves. So for you, you've seen, you see yourself as you have made choices that have set you apart from this idealized Christian value narrative of being a wife and a mother and taking care of a household, right? You've made some other decisions. You've made it into menopause, child-free and unmarried. And that is against the norm. And so you can take that into a situation where you're trying to find common ground with other advocates who don't look like you and who don't otherwise have some of the more privileged experiences that you've had in your life. But the other thing too, though, is what's important in movement building is also to get away from this idea that the only oppressed people are people who have poverty, who are non-white, who are not religious. Like there, there are some commonalities that when you look at things from the standpoint of oppression, from the standpoint of community, then some of these other things that we see as differences among us become, you know, those can go away. Now, of course, you know, we're not talking about colorblindness and all this ridiculousness. But what we're saying is to be a true participant in this movement in an authentic way, you have to see where those intersections are. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I had my own abortion. So I am in that reproductive movement, if you will. But I also now am part of, I feel, a larger community where I don't particularly have the label, but I support LGBT, you know, QIA plus 
and especially with when it comes to bodily autonomy. So if, it, if anything, I'm more, although I've had like lots of gay friends and I don't really know very many trans people, but I feel so much more like close to trans people out there who are really being oppressed. Literally, their existence is being challenged in the courts and all of these crazy uh, laws that people are putting through in the states. Oh, there was so much good stuff that Dr. Deshaun Taylor and I spoke about that I'm splitting it into two episodes. So this is it for the first half. So stay tuned for the next episode as we further get into LGBTQIA issues, as well as racism and how that affects reproductive rights and what we can do about it. The call to action in the next episode. So don't forget to subscribe and stay hysterical, everybody. We are the universe. So beautiful. the world.